Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about community Bible reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. Okay, gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. I'm here with Josh Kessler and Nate Claiborne, and we're going to talk about the Gospel of Mark. So obviously when you turn to the New Testament, you got four Gospels right at the beginning. So what's different or unique about Mark? How does it compare to the other Gospels? Josh, why don't you start? Nate, you want to start? Yeah, either way. I just confused you. No <laughs> one else can see you. I, I, I mean, uh, I think one thing that's uh, really distinct about Mark, um, and we'll probably get into a little of this with style, uh, would definitely be his style, his style of writing, but then also just his sort of specific message um, and really kind of answering this question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Um, you know, who's this Who's this man that, that commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him? Yeah, so. and it's almost in your face right away. In fact, mm-hmm. right before we came on, you were talking about the beginning of Mark being like a movie. Yeah. Do you want to mention that? Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of like an action movie. I mean, Mark doesn't even bother to talk about the birth narrative at all. Mm-hmm. He just like launches right into it. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then verse six, boom, there's John the Baptist. Uh, and this, this really, to speak into that sort of that distinct style uh, of it kind of being like an action movie, he loves the word immediately. Like you see that, I mean, you just can keep... All of a sudden, boom, immediately Jesus is somewhere else. He was here, then immediately this happens. So it just kind of moves along and clips along at this really fast pace. Mm. Um, So it's a very distinct writing style of Mark in comparison to the other Gospels. That's good. Yeah, it almost, it it stands out. I mean, Matthew and Luke seem very similar. They both have birth narratives at the front end. John has this, you know, big picture theological front end, connecting it back to in the beginning. But like you said, with Mark, it just jumps right into the action. And it's just Boom. focused on what what does Jesus do? And then asks the question of who Jesus is. And I think historically, some of the explanation for that is uh, Mark is written by a guy named John Mark, who is recording Peter's take on living with Jesus. And mm. so in a sense, it it does make sense why I wouldn't have a birth narrative. And it really starts shortly before Peter gets called into being one of Jesus's followers. And so if it really is his memories, it's really what was it like following Jesus for the three years you followed Jesus. Um, but I also think historically it's, it's tied to an initial audience in Rome. And in Roman culture, it's really focused more on the importance of a person as measured by what they do. And so mm. it, that's why it's so doing focused and also so compact. It's just, it's just a list of his deeds. What is he capable of doing? Who is this Jesus man? Right. Man being the operative term there. Yeah. And I think who, like, who is he in, in the sense of there were there in, in that time, there were so many misinterpretations of who Jesus was or what he came to do. Mm -hmm. And so trying to make it really clear to that audience in Rome, like, who is this guy? Yeah. And, and when you read the book, it it's impossible to to miss. Well, that might be strong. <laughs> it it makes it's clear that thing you're talking about of everyone's wondering who is this, the one who can fill in the blank. But yet, right at the beginning, uh, someone gets it right mm-hmm. in verse in chapter one, verse twenty four. Jesus is doing something right, and 
in verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which we know, having read the whole gospel, that is who he is. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him, obviously talking about an unclean spirit. In verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority, right? So it's almost like they missed it. They missed what what he said. But this has been called uh, the messianic secret, which shows up in Mark, and it's given some readers trouble throughout the years. So, Nate, can you speak to what this is and, and how we can maybe understand it as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, so it's this, it's this motif that shows up as you're reading through where Jesus will heal someone in, of an unclean spirit, like in this example, and they'll correctly identify him and he'll shush him, or he'll heal a blind man and the blind man gets it. He sees yeah. who Jesus truly is and Jesus tells him not to go home and don't tell anyone. And it's just this sort of, well, if he's the son of God come to save the world, why isn't he like broadcasting that a little more readily? Um, and I think it even sticks out more glaringly if you're reading canonically and you've just read Matthew and now you're reading Mark. Because Matthew goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. He's this new Moses type figure. He's this promised son of David. Just kind of is very clear this is who Jesus is all the way through the gospel of Matthew for the most part. But in Mark, all of a sudden it's like, oh, was he trying to keep it a secret for the first part of his ministry? And you know, the disciples don't seem to understand. The people don't seem to understand. Weirdly, it's the demons who seem to understand the clearest. But he's off shushing them, telling them not to say anything. Um, and one of the better explanations that I think can make sense of it is it's part of Mark's overall literary strategy to sort of gradually unfold Jesus's identity and the climax being... Right when he dies, a centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. And it's mm. a surprising reversal of the person that finally gets it in public is this Roman centurion, not mm -hmm. one of the Jewish disciples, not one of the Pharisees, not one of the other religious leaders. Um, and it's in his death that his identity is truly revealed, not in his healing, not in mm. his calming the wind and the waves, not in right. his feeding the 5,000. It's at the moment when he does complete his mission in a certain sense that it, it's now we can reveal his identity. Mm. Um, and one of the explanations that I've heard is that uh, I think it, you may even trace this back to someone like N.T. Wright with this idea of in order for his mission to unfold the way it needed to unfold, he couldn't be crowned the king in glory before he entered into suffering. Mm. And so if everyone, mm -hmm. if he revealed, if he just went around telling everyone, I'm the promised king of Israel, I'm here to liberate you from the Romans it would have caused this giant uprising. Mm -hmm. They would have ultimately got everyone killed, not just him, and right. it wouldn't have accomplished the suffering death that he needed to die. Mm. And so I, I, that's kind of stuck with me when I first read about that. Of it, it does make sense of he is going to reveal who he is, but it's on his timetable that mm -hmm. he reveals who he is, not on the demon's timetable, not on other people's timetable. Right. And I, and I think what, what's so powerful about that as well is that when you're, when you're reading through chronologically as though you're not sure who he is, like if you can, if you can participate as though you were 
a first time hearer of this gospel. Mm. Once you do hear who he is and it climaxes at his death, you then look back from that perspective and you understand all of these, uh, you understand that answer to all those other questions of who is this, who can calm the wind and waves and so on. Oh, this is the one who came to die uh, as the, the promised one of Israel, the savior. And I, I think that even underscores Josh's point from earlier. It's, it's like it's like seeing a movie for the first time where it has a scene at the very end. I'll, I'll use Arrival as a good example of, without mm. spoiling it, just if you haven't seen this movie, go watch this movie. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene at the end that once you've seen that one big reveal at the end, it reframes the way you understand the whole story. Yeah. You have to go back and watch it again. And when we watch it the second time, there's all these very obvious hints that that thing was true all along. But it's very difficult to re-experience it for the first time mm-hmm. once you know the reveal. Yeah, yeah. It's it, to that point. Reframing expectations um, is a, is a big part of that uh, because had he revealed himself, you know, in that right away in that time, he's he already was having trouble getting to people because the crowds were so uh, mm-hmm. there were so many people coming to him. He couldn't even heal. Um, I think in, in one instance, because the crowds were so great, he couldn't, he couldn't get to anybody. Um, so not just that, but sort of reframing the expectations of, of the Messiah and for us discipleship, like how do we, you know, how do we, how do we follow Jesus? Well, it's, it's, it's through this road of suffering, uh, really that's, that's the, that's the big reveal. Who is this man? He's not just the son of God who's come in power. He's this this son of man who has come to suffer and die mm-hmm. and to serve. Uh, many have called it the the title verse of the book. I, the son of man came to serve, not to be served. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, certainly. So we've already hit on some elements of these, but I want to zoom out and speak specifically to the occasion or purpose. What we have four gospels, right? So what is the the purpose? Or, or the uniqueness uh, to mark in terms of occasion, date, author, so on? Well, I think, so historically, it, it, there's different scholarly opinions, but at this point, I think it's more often than not, people will concede Mark was probably the first gospel written, and so it, it is the most compact of the gospels. Um, so that's one element of it, is it's, you can sit down and read Mark in one sitting pretty easily. Um, it's less focused on the Old Testament in the way that a book like Matthew is. It doesn't have a sequel in a direct sense the way that Luke does. Luke has a different agenda. He's more showing the, the spread of the spread of the gospel goes to all peoples, whereas I would say Mark is really more emphasizing discipleship as a costly endeavor. Mm-hmm. We'd say the cost of discipleship is a key part of Mark. And Josh, mm-hmm. Josh kind of already talked about this, just this idea of like the Son of Man came to suffer and serve, not to be crowned in glory right away. Yeah. Um, and John just kind of provides a big picture theological retrospective in a sense, because mm-hmm. I think we would say John was written last several decades after the other Gospels, um, whereas Matthew and Luke were written closer together. Mark's written a little earlier. Yeah, I think that that's powerful. I had a, I had a seminary, uh, a professor in seminary, New Testament professor named Hans Beyer, and his scholarly work was the Gospel of Mark. And he's written a popular level book, a large commentary in German, and I just saw recently that he's going to come out with an English commentary on Mark. 
uh, soon. But one thing that he emphasized over and over was that Mark's fundamental concern is about the cost of discipleship. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's alone in that, but I think he's given his, his scholarly life to that. And and I think that it, it resonates, not, not only because it gives us concrete examples and also concepts of expectation. Someone used that word, expectation of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we'll, we'll suffer, we will have to follow him in service to others, taking up the towel and so on. But the, the, there's a cost to discipleship. I think that's very helpful for us to, to remember that as we follow Jesus, there's a sense in which part of that cost is not always understanding what's happening, right? There's an exercise of faith, and you have the disciples stumbling and failing frequently. And so we see ourselves in the disciples. Uh, we, we're, these disciples, uh, this gospel does not make the disciples look great. It doesn't make them look good. It makes them look like we can see ourselves in them. I mean, there are these amazing responses of faith that are worthy of emulation. And then there are colossal failures and misunderstandings and blunderings. And they're all sort of together in the same gospel with the same group of people. So I think that I have found comfort in that, uh, to know that, yes, there is a cost of discipleship. And I will learn that cost in real life over time through my failings and through my successes. So with that, anybody want to add something to that? I was going to say, it just stuck out to me as you were talking about this, the way the disciples don't look well. Like, it, yeah. Discipleship is costly and complicated in yeah, some respects, good. and even the disciples struggled with it. And it's even more remarkable if you think about what we mentioned earlier of is this, if this is Peter's remembrances, mm-hmm. it's interesting to look at the portrait of Peter that you get in Mark. It's not, it's not any different than Matthew or Luke's. It's still just as foot in the mouth, kind of yeah. bold, but confused. And he makes the confession truly, you know, you are the Christ, the son of God, but then he's also, you know, cutting off people's ears and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, to, and to your point about um, just some of those stories being so reassuring, uh, I mean, Peter does, he does the worst thing you could do, and Jesus comes and restores him. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, he straight up denies him three times, but Jesus comes and, and pulls him aside and restores him mm-hmm. again after that. So that's comforting to know that you really could you cannot go far enough from God's grace mm-hmm. where it won't find you. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I mean, the flip side of that, right, is that the disciple is not looking good. It makes Jesus look very gracious and patient mm-hmm. and kind and pursuing and the Father's love uh, as as generous and overflowing. So it, it accomplished both, accomplishes both of those things, which gives us hope and, and peace and so on. Mm. So I'm wondering now, we've talked a little bit about purpose, occasion, uh, date, and so on. Are there any grammatical distinctions or phrases that are noteworthy or, or unique to Mark, Mark's gospel? Yeah, I already mentioned it um, a little bit, but it's that that word immediately mm-hmm. um, really kind of helps you move along in the story uh, very quickly. And then, um, of course, we have... Uh, we have the parables. Those are really distinct um, about Mark. Um, Mark's a big fan of, of triads, putting things in threes. Um, there's three boat scenes. Um, often, uh, 
I think at least three times where where Jesus sort of reframes um, to the disciples who he is. Uh, he's a big fan of triads, um, and this really nerdy um, uh, term that we that we call intercalation, where he likes to he likes to start a story and sort of interrupt it, put another story in between it, and then bookend it. Um, so it's, it's, it's also called sandwiching, but he likes to do that too. So those are some, just a few of the really distinct things about Mark. Mm. Just to piggyback, piggyback on that and give a concrete example, the, the famous Jesus cursing the fig tree mm-hmm. would be an example of that. If we get the scene where Jesus curses the fig tree and then he goes and cleanses the temple and then he comes back and there's a lesson from the withered fig tree and you're supposed to read them all together, even though they seem unrelated in that Israel is supposed to be bearing fruit and they're not. And an example of that is, well, the temple is in disarray because it's being turned into a den for money changers instead of a place for sacrifice. And it doesn't directly connect as much when you get the lesson from the withered fig tree. But as you think about it more, you realize, oh, this is probably what it has to do with. Yeah. And that's, that's one example of sort of driving a point home. There's a, other times he'll contrast. So um, he'll, he'll, you'll start in, um, in the, uh, the temple scene with Peter's denial, and that's sandwiched with Jesus's affirmation of who he is before the Pharisees, and then bookended again with Peter's uh, second and third denial. So mm. Yeah, that's good. All right, so do you guys have any favorite parts of the Gospel of Mark that, that you haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to speak to? Um, I I think of the passage, and I'm, I'm looking to get the exact verse. I feel like I should know it off the top of my head, but <laughs> it's it's around the uh, it's around the fig tree discussion uh, where he tells them it's the whole if you have faith to move mountains passage. Yeah. Mm. Um, and one of the things that maybe isn't really a favorite passage, but just something I've been being more attentive to as I'm reading the Gospels is really trying to understand the geography of what's going on. So thinking of like where Galilee is in relation to Jerusalem, where Capernaum is, Mm -hmm. and just kind of realizing that geographic details in the Gospels are not just incidental window dressing, but it actually does help you understand what happens where, like the reason this story happens in Galilee is because Galilee has more Gentiles in it or something like that. Mm. Um, And so one of those things is when he says the Holy Faith to Move Mountains speech, um, he, he really says this mountain, but they're standing in relation to the temple. And so he's not talking about mountains in general so much as your faith will be able to overthrow even the most established religious system, mm. i.e. the temple worship with the Sadducees, Pharisees, etc. Mm. Um, and so it, it's not a, if you have faith, you can have whatever you want. It's a very clear example of if you can think about where Jesus is talking, it helps mm. you understand what he means by what he's saying. And so you don't overgeneralize it. And I've just, the more I've been studying the Gospels in general, Mark as well, in particular recently and thinking geographically, it's helped unlock some of these passages. Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've already mentioned the fact that I just love um, the style of Mark, uh, the way he just kind of moves through things because it's like, it's like reading an action movie. Um, but also I think, the way that he explains who Jesus is, and like we've already touched on a little bit how that relates to discipleship. I think um, 
I would say probably before I went to Bible college, uh, I never really thought. Uh, one of my professors made the point of of when you're reading a Bible story and you're trying to figure out who you are in the story, uh, you're the sinner. <laughs> right. And uh, and so just having the ability, I think I think Mark gives you that reframing of what what is this whole thing? What is this Christian life about? What is following Jesus about? And it's about this this continual life of of self denial. Um, serving others, learning how to lose your life. Um, and I would say before I'd, I'd studied, uh, really studied the Bible in depth or, you know, Mark and the Gospels at all, Mark really helps you reframe um, maybe your expectations on what is what is this and, and what's it about. And so I think that was one of the favorite things um, for me, it's good. reading through Mark. I had, I had thought of one more as you were saying that. Um, the adolescent version of me would always read um, Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. Uh, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Ooh. And high school me just thought that was the funniest. Like, what's this <laughs> naked guy doing in Mark, just streaking away, you know? Right. Um, but I recently, it going through seminary and kind of learning some of these things that we've been talking about, like Josh was talking about with sandwiching or inter intercolating, um, just made me think there's got to be a reason those two verses are there. Like mm. it's not just a throwaway thing to mention. Um, and I did a little digging and came across a journal article that kind of helped unlock it for me. Um, and so now it's actually, it's kind of something high schoolers giggle at, but if we want to trace that further, so there's a young man, he leaves naked and throughout scripture, nakedness is usually a sign of shame, disgrace, dishonor. And so this young man is left naked and it's right before Jesus goes before the council. It's right before Peter denies Jesus. And then ultimately Jesus is delivered to Pilate, crucified, you know, dies and is buried. But then in chapter 16, when he's resurrected, it's probably not incidental if we're looking at the resurrection passage. Uh, just start in verse one. The Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone from for us from the entrance of the tomb?" And if I could sidebar a little bit, this is one of those examples of the authenticity of the Gospels because if this was guys making up a story, they would not think about who's going to roll the stone away. They would just, oh, we could handle this. But a group of women would legitimately wonder, how are we actually going to get into this well-guarded, and also there's this huge stone blocking the tomb. Uh, but looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large, Mark tells us. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And so I don't want to necessarily suggest it's the same young man, but the last time we saw a young man in the gospel, he was running away naked and ashamed. And now we see a man, a young man clothed in white, and he's the first person to announce Christ is risen. And it is a symbol probably of uh, being covered by the death resurrection of Christ uh, that covers our nakedness and shame. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's just you know it's a little speculative in some sense, but I'm just like well there's there's got to be a reason there's the young man here and the young man there, yeah. 
they're not the same person probably and that's why it's a young man and not a person mentioned by name yeah we would say this is probably an angel of some kind but mm-hmm. we don't actually know for sure yeah yeah that's good i think that it just reminds me of a theme that we have mentioned throughout the podcast which is that simply this we want to continue to grow as attentive readers of the scriptures and mm-hmm. and to understand that these authors uh, inspired by the holy spirit are very thoughtful and uh, they are uh, very much well let's just put it this way uh it's not random right mm-hmm. it's not random and and therefore we also would want to know that there are clues that we have uh, and we need to pay attention.